Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. This is not about saying men are better than women. It's about saying that biology is what biology is. You know, biology doesn't equal morality. No one is making that case. What we're saying is that biology makes competition between males and females unequal. That's just the nature of things. And in fact, obviously, our whole point here is to protect women and to protect opportunities for women. Welcome, everyone, to the next episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, an Austin Institute podcast. I am your host, one of your two hosts for this show, Dr. Kevin Stewart. I'm the executive director of the Austin Institute. Today, we are talking about a very timely and important and, and almost red-hot issue, the Equality Act. As we record this, the Equality Act has passed the U.S. House of Representatives in Congress and is moving over to the Senate side. There are many issues associated with this bill that touch upon the lives of ordinary Americans and families. Sports is one of the biggest and most prominent ones. In addition to an executive order earlier this year and also this federal legislation, there is state legislation in a number of states, including Texas, regarding protecting women's sports and keeping women's sports for biological females. And we're going to get to all that. But I want to start today by introducing special guests. I have three. This is a, a, a what we can't not talk about first, to have three three guests on at once. Um, three very impressive ones, individually and certainly as a family. They are all related, a father and two daughters. They are Margaret Craycraft Swinson, Olivia Craycraft, and Ken Craycraft. Ken is the James G. Gardner Family Chair of Moral Theology. Margaret is a three-time high school conference champion in diving, two-time sectional champion, and first-team All-Ohio as a senior, valedictorian of her high school class in 2011, and Princeton University class of 2015. Olivia is a two-time all-conference high school softball player, and as a sophomore, led her highly competitive conference with a 557 batting average and a 606 batting average. Also led the conference in hits, triples, and stolen bases. She was first team all conference and first team all city, and will be valedictorian of her high school class in 2021 and matriculate at Washington University in St. Louis. So, welcome, Craycrafts. Good to be with you, Stuart. It's good to be here. I want to start with Ken. Ken, you've written about women's sports and the Equality Act. Tell us how you came to weigh in on this topic. The Equality Act was, you know, more really just political flexing under the prior Congress, but now it's a more serious issue. And there are lots of problems with the Equality Act. And I'm interested in all those problems. But this one that's most specific to me, because it hits home, quite literally hits home, is the provisions that have to do with women's athletics. Now, of course, the Equality Act doesn't have any express reference to women's athletics, but it does talk about equality to locker rooms and transgender rights and other kinds of code words, which are clear indications that under the Equality Act, if it were to pass, that so-called transgender athletes, including men who identify as women, 
would be permitted to compete against women in athletic competitions and, of course, use locker rooms, restrooms, and other shared facilities that are now considered to be, you know, women's facilities. And the reason this is important for me was intimated, of course, in your introduction, is that I have you know, two daughters who have competed at the very highest levels of athletic competition. I actually have five daughters and all five of them have competed in athletics, but two in particular who have competed at a very high level. And to be perfectly honest, it has allowed them to achieve things even in academics that they would not have otherwise uh, been able to achieve. If either of these daughters had been forced to compete against transgender girls, that is males who identify as girls, would have jeopardized not just their athletic competition and their athletic achievements, but their academic achievements as well. That is that is to say that their athletic accomplishments were instrumental in both of them getting into very high-level universities. If you take away the athletic component of their applications, their applications would have looked a lot like other applications of girls with very similar academic credentials, but of course who get denied when you're applying to a university that has a 10% or less admissions rate. So it's a very important issue for me because I see this as laying the legal groundwork for taking away the rights of women to compete against their own peers. And you know, Kevin, what's so ironic about this is that the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed in large part, especially Title IX, was passed in large part to protect women athletes and to make sure that women athletes have the same, that is to say, equal access to athletic competition that men have. Because before the 1964 Civil Rights Act and even sometime after, it was sort of a separate but equal kind of mentality that many universities and high schools had for athletic competition. It was all concentrated on the boys finances and resources were spent on boys, and girls were considered basically second-class citizens when it came to athletics. The 1964 Civil Rights Act, and especially Title IX, made the playing field level so that girls had access to the same facilities, the same resources, and the same opportunities that boys had in athletic competitions. It's the cruelest irony that the Equality Act, which is to amend the 1964 Civil Rights Act, including Title IX, will take those opportunities away, or at least lays the legal groundwork for taking them away, completely reversing what the very purpose, uh, at least in part, of the 64 Civil Rights Act was uh, passed to implement. So it's close to me because of the legal and political issues, but also obviously because the autobiographical issues as well. Right. Yes, I should have led in saying, in addition to being a professor of moral theology, Dr. Craycraft is also a JD, so he knows the law as well. Yeah, it's that legal aspect that really makes me very nervous because a lot of uh, supporters of the bill will say, well, the incidents of this happening are so rare and they're anecdotal. Well, so far they have been rare, but they're not anecdotal to the girls who have been pushed off the podium or have had opportunities taken away from them by boys. And so the legal aspect of this is extremely important because even if so far there haven't been very many, what it does is it makes it illegal. And this is a better way really to put it. It makes it illegal for a high school to deny a boy from competing against girls. It takes away the illegal uh, right of a high school to deny a boy from entering a girl's locker room simply by declaring that he identifies as female. And Kevin, it's really important that listeners understand what this means. In order for a boy to identify as transgender 
All he has to do is say he identifies as transgender female. He doesn't have to take any hormones. He doesn't have to have any surgery. He doesn't have to do anything that might inhibit his athletic ability. Even now, I, I do want to add very quickly, those things do not do not bring a boy's uh, achievements to the level of girls' achievements anyway. But the fact is, you don't even have to do that. Under this bill and under the executive order signed by President Biden, all a male athlete has to do is declare that he identifies as female. And under this law and under the EO, schools cannot and athletic conferences cannot deny him the opportunity of competing against girls and women. Thank you for that summary. That was That's really helpful and gives us a view both into the position from the point of view of subject matter expertise, but also the autobiographical element. And I want to I kind of hit that first as well. And maybe this is the time to bring in Margaret and Olivia, and they can take turns. We'll start with Margaret. Margaret, given that background and given the threat that potential legislation, executive orders, both at the federal and state level, represent to female athletics. I think it's important to get an understanding of the role that women's athletics has played. Dr. Craycraft put it in the context, the longer context of a half century or more now since the Civil Rights Act and Title IX and efforts to promote and foster women's athletics. But you have a very personal first-person experience with this, and I really want to understand that. Tell us about the role that sports has played in your own life as part of your formation as a person and also, as Ken mentioned, as part of your education. Well, sure. As part of my formation as a person, diving is... Well, I was a diver, first of all. Diving has played an essential part in really discovering who I am. Sports, athletics can mean so much more than people people realize. And for me and for many of my siblings, including my sister Olivia, it's something that is not just a hobby. It's not just something that we had a little bit of talent for. It's something that we did have a little bit of talent for. But then we, with the help of our parents, were able to invest a lot of time, sacrifice a lot, a lot of money on my parents' part in order to get the best coaches that we could find in order to practice at the best facilities in our area, in order to enter competitions that were sometimes all over the country. And just being able to compete at that level and to compete that often really teaches you so much about yourself. For me, it it really helped me overcome my social anxiety and really taught me how to be brave. My sport of diving is one where you stand up alone and you choose to be judged over and over and over again. And every dive is just as important as the one before it and the one after it. And so it really feels like there's a lot at stake every time you get up on the board. It's a very mental sport. It's a very physical sport. And it's a very personal sport, at least for me. So it it really was essential in my formation as a person. But then as a student, my dad's right. My academic achievements were good, but they weren't enough to make me stand out at a top university. And so diving, in addition to my academic achievements, was 
what allowed me to have that edge over someone else and be admitted to a university that otherwise I probably wouldn't have been. So it's, and that of course changes the course of my life too, the school that I went to and bringing me to where I am today. So it's been life-changing and it's not something that I would have been nearly as successful at if I were competing against boys because in diving, you are judged by judges and you get a score from zero to 10. And then your three middle scores or five, it depends on how many judges are actually, are combined and then multiplied by a degree of difficulty. Now that degree of difficulty is really where the points start adding up. So the harder your dive, the higher the degree of difficulty. That multiplied times your score uh, from the judges is what gives you your total score at the end. Now, boys in general have much higher total scores at the end of the meet because they are able to achieve much higher degrees of difficulty. And so really, I wouldn't have been able to compete against any of my peers who were boys, any of my teammates who were boys. And well, that would have really changed the course of my life. Olivia, let's get you in here too. Tell us about, you have recently signed with Washington University, St. Louis. So tell us about that. Yeah, so kind of a lot of what Margaret said also applies to me in my academics, especially. So I have been playing at, you know, the highest level you can as a as a high school athlete, especially with like travel ball and, and things over the summer. So thanks to my parents and everything they did, just like Margaret said, I was able to train with the best coaches available with the best resources. And Washington University is obviously a very good school as well. And I'm very, very lucky and excited for my time there in the future. And it's very, very similar to Margaret. I have academic achievements, but without my athletic achievements as well, I probably wouldn't have gotten into the school. And so just as Margaret was saying, in similar ways, the thought of having to compete against people who biologically are stronger or faster is really disheartening to hear or to have to think about as a young female athlete, especially looking to go in and play in college. And especially with how many advances there seems to be having in women's sports, especially at the college level in terms of, of viewers and things like that and how much that's changed even in, in my life. And so that's why something like this is scary and disheartening to see how it could affect women's sports when they seem to be doing so much better right now than they had been in the past. So as we dive down into this issue, I, I want to kind of divide the question into sort of two separate questions and tackle them individually and get any reactions that y'all might have, any thoughts you might have related to this, especially in your experience and also in your writings for Ken. So it really, see, the issue seems to me to break down in two ways. The first is the threat to competitiveness if males compete in women's sports. And then, so the unfair advantages to competitiveness that this legislation may entail. And then the second is regarding personal safety and privacy and the, the damage to personal safety and privacy. So on the first question, the importance of women's sports and the dangers of unfair advantages to competitiveness, it seems to me that our culture trains us not to see inherent natural 
non-socially constructed differences between men and women. But we're really running up, as Margaret and Olivia both mentioned, we're running up against the limit of that exercise. So a little biology, the first differences between males and females start to emerge at about seven weeks of gestation. That's pretty early. And then there are, by the time there are adults, there are roughly 6,500 differences between male and female gene expression. 6,500 that we have cataloged differences between male and female gene expression. And those, of course, begin to emerge early and really take off at puberty. I'm relying heavily for research on this from a researcher named Emma Hilton, and she's at the Faculty of Biology, Medicine, and Health at the University of Manchester. And she brings up a couple of the important facts to really understand the the threat and the disadvantage that Margaret and Olivia are talking about that, that is the prospect that is entailed by the prospect of competing against males. Dr. Hilton cites the fact that so big is the gap between male musculature, bone structure, and things like that, that there are 9,000 males between 100-meter record holders Usain Bolt and Flojo. So early does the gap emerge, she says, that the current female 100-meter Olympic champion, Elaine Thompson, is slower than the 14-year-old schoolboy record holder. And so unassailable is the gap, has the gap proven to be that virtually all elite sports have a protected female category to allow females to compete fairly against those with the same potential and to win and, okay, make money as well, right? So that that can be an important part of it. Yeah. And I think it's important to say Dr. Hilton certainly is not disparaging women's sports. She is the woman there. But what we're talking about here are some of the biological and chemical advantages that men have when it comes to these competitive activities that are not a product of merit, but simply of of genetic expression and hormonal environment. Men's muscle mass, men's bones are longer and denser. Men's muscle fibers, are there are more of them. They are longer and denser. So their torque capabilities are higher. Their upper body strength is higher. And very importantly, what has been mentioned is, okay, well, you know, the, the athletes go on a testosterone-inhibiting program. And that's what the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, has given the green light to. But research shows that doesn't actually take away the advantage. It doesn't diminish the the muscle density tremendously. A little, but it doesn't erase the advantage. And that may be, I think, some of that science is behind what you were mentioning, Ken, and also Olivia and Margaret, about the reason there's a threat here is some very basic biological difference that, as Dr. Hilton said, no one has ever needed to tell us before. <laughs> no one has needed a study to, to see these things before, but now we do. Yeah, that's right. In addition to the puberty blockers or the testosterone, another thing that it doesn't do are testosterone inhibitors. It also doesn't affect lung and heart size, which in, especially in terms of endurance sports is crucially important. You, you cited a, a couple. I, I would actually also refer to a very important study by actually one of my former law professors, Dorian Coleman, 
and her colleague Wycliffe Shreve at the Duke University School of Law, they've done a great deal of research and compiled a great deal of evidence demonstrating in track and field, for example, which is what Dorian Coleman's specialty is. She herself was an Olympic runner and was a NCAA champion at Cornell University and now teaches at Duke Law School. And she has compiled an amazing amount of data demonstrating exactly what you just mentioned. And it's really interesting, uh, Kevin, because you can just start with boys under 18. There isn't a single world record in swimming or in uh, track and field or any sport that's measured by a tape measure or a clock in which boys, junior boys, that is defined in track and field as under 18 years old, whose best times are significantly better than the fastest woman in the world in the open competition. And it's not just single incidences, it's multiplied over and over again. So you take, for example, just using one example, the 400 meters, in 2019, 285 high school boys just in the U.S. alone, 285 high school boys just in the U.S. alone, ran faster than the 400-meter women's world Olympic champion. If you take that same event and don't go by athletes, but go by performances, the woman's 400-meter time for the Olympic and world champion was bettered by high school boys 4,341 times. So we literally are talking about at least the theoretical elimination of women's athletics. And there's nothing that that can be done artificially to change the things that you just mentioned. In addition, you mentioned the IOC. The IOC, even though it's prescribed these testosterone blockers and other measures that it tries to to level the playing field so that so-called transgender women can compete, they still allow the testosterone level for transgender athletes to be much, much higher than they allow it for female athletes. So in other words, it's still a double standard. By their own admission, it's a double standard because they allow a much higher testosterone level for transgender athletes than they allow for women's athletes. In other words, if a woman's athlete had the same testosterone level as a transgender female athlete, that woman athlete would not be allowed to compete. Wow. And and I think it's doubly problematic because so you have the double standard. And then in addition to that, even if that testosterone level were as low as a female, a biologically female athlete, the advantages, the testosterone related advantages would remain. That's what the research Correct. shows so far. Correct. That's right. They don't they don't go away. That muscle mass, those longer muscles, the more torque, as you mentioned earlier, the bigger heart, the bigger lungs. And again, you made the point and I want to reiterate it. This is not about saying men are better than women. It's about saying that biology is what biology is. You know, biology doesn't equal morality. No one is making that case. What we're saying is that biology makes competition between males and females unequal. That's just the nature of things. And in fact, obviously, our whole point here is to protect women and to protect opportunities for women. Yeah, I think especially because as Margaret and Olivia were making clear, athletics is an important dimension of human excellence. And it's one that needs to be open to and fostered for all of us. And that means fair competition, right? Fair play. That's exactly right. In addition to fair play, and I'll let Margaret and Olivia uh, chime in here. Dad does this a lot more than they do. So you also mentioned safety. 
And the concern that I have now with Margaret, she's a diver, so there was never any contact that you're alone on the board. But Olivia plays softball. It isn't just a matter of the potential of having your spot on the team taken away by a boy, but it's also the problem of competing against a boy. A boy can hit a ball much, much harder, much, much farther, throw the ball much harder, or think about sports that have direct contact as a part of the sport, like, for instance, basketball or obviously football. I mean, women don't play football in an organized way that men do, but just take basketball as an example or other sports that are now divided by gender that perhaps would no longer be such as field hockey or even ice hockey and things like that. So sports which involve direct contact, you're not only talking about advantages that so-called transgender women have over biological women, but you're also talking about very significantly increasing the risk of injury to women as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the stats on that in one of the studies that I have in front of me here is the male performance advantages described even for non-elite athletes. I mean, we're talking mostly about elite athletes, but even for non-elite athletes, the differences are profound and that males have 57% greater muscle size, 109% greater isometric strength and 89% greater strength than age-matched females. So this presents, and again, that's not so much a bragging point for men or anything, but it's as a father, that's a real worry in two ways. The first of which we're talking about now, which is safety on the field of play. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that's always a concern. And especially, you know, we've become more sensitive to things like concussion protocol while we're introducing the possibility of that being a much more significant problem. You know, just one more little data point, and that is, it's interesting if you look at the progression, and again, let's just talking about measurable athletic events like track and field and swimming. If you look at the progression of men's and women's elite records, and of course they progressed over the years as training has become more sophisticated and diet and so forth, and all the things that make a performance get better, you see a consistent 10 to 12% performance gap between men and women throughout every measurable event. It's uncanny how consistent it is. So no matter what kind of improvements men make in athletic competition, and no matter what kind of improvements women make, that 10 to 12% gap is absolutely persistent over decades and decades of improvement. And again, that just bears out all of the biological, physiological, and scientific data that you've just been rehearsing. To get one more thing on the table before we get the women's reaction to all of this is then there's that final issue of personal safety in the form of privacy. Because as you mentioned at the outset, we're talking about the prohibition that would be knocked down by these laws, by these changes in policy would include the prohibition on men in the women's locker room. Presumably, these biological males would be sharing everything about the team including the changing showering locker room facilities. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's a matter of privacy and modesty. And it's important to note that that goes beyond mere athletics because that would happen in any single sex restroom or single gender restroom, even apart from athletic competition. So you've got that basic modesty and you know basic privacy issues in addition to the potential for other problems as well. Yeah. From either Margaret or Olivia or both, I'd like to get, as we've kind of gotten a lot of the nuts and bolts of the implications of these changes out on the table, I'm interested to hear what their reactions are 
as far as how they think about their own athletic competition, like if they were to go back in time under a scenario envisioned by these changes, how would it change their own involvement with sports? How are girls and then women going to feel about competing under these conditions? So I think for me personally, as Margaret or my dad mentioned, he does have five daughters. So Margaret and I have four sisters each, but we also have four brothers. And so growing up with four brothers, you know, that's who we play sports with all the time. That's who, as they like to say, toughened us up as young kids. But there gotten to a point where we couldn't always do the same things anymore. And it wasn't about them being better than either of us at anything. And they made it clear, like we always grew up knowing that. And so I think what's also kind of cool about my sport specifically is that there is an equivalent for men in baseball. And the thing is, softball and baseball are two completely different sports. Their rules are different. The lengths of the field are different. The lengths of the base pass are different. And so it kind of reiterates that idea that they're just separate. And it's not that one is great other, that they're just two separate things. And so that's what makes the idea of having to compete against biological males or people who have these things that they were just born with that make them stronger or have more endurance or whatever. It makes it so scary when you've grown up knowing that they're not better than you because we're girls, but it's just different. So when it comes to safety in the locker room, it's already a really vulnerable place where you're showering, winding down and changing and removing that I guess adding any extra vulnerability to that, removing any safety is worrisome to any person, any girl, any woman, and also any parent. I agree with Margaret with that, especially with how close I am to my team. And like she said, it's a vulnerable thing. And the fact that I am so close with these people and the idea of not having that that safety or security and even outside of athletics, even just being a young woman in Just in general, there's always that sense of vulnerability and the idea that you're not necessarily protected in a restroom or locker room is definitely a scary thought. Yeah. If you could tell the legislators deliberating on these issues, if you could talk to them, what would you tell them? Say that this isn't progress. It's really a regression in rights for women. And it's not equal and it's not fair. I would say I feel like they're taking away opportunities for women that men have had an abundance of for a long time. And now that it's really seeming to be equal and be fair and women are having these opportunities. And just when that seems to be really hitting its peak and it just seems like we're going in the wrong direction. I have to say, as a frequent observer of women's sports, I see exactly what you're talking about and that I can remember in my college days with the basketball team, you could go and see the women's game for free, usually either before or after, I can't remember which actually, the men's basketball game. And now, at least at my own alma mater, there are oftentimes when the women's game is packing the house, pre-COVID that is, the stands were full for the women's game. And when the men weren't very good, the stands were kind of empty. So it was exactly the reverse. And so it seems like we're just now reaching a really important point historically where women's athletics has come into its own and has built a solid fan base of support, which is important for the finances involved in maintaining and even furthering women's sports. And that this is a really important moment not to fumble the ball on. 
Yeah, you know, you're exactly right, Kevin. And just to reiterate that, I too watch a great deal of women's sports. I probably watch more women's sports on television than I do men's sports. And even to be able to say that is remarkable. You couldn't have said that 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago, probably 10 years ago. For example, and two of the sports that have really been successful on television, and they wouldn't be on television if people weren't watching, are softball, college softball, and women's college volleyball. And you're right, the stands are full, but more importantly, in terms of funding women's athletics and therefore opportunities for women, the TV ratings are there. Because again, if, they, if nobody was watching, they wouldn't be on TV. That's just a simple economic factor. So you're exactly right. And to reiterate Olivia's point, that just when we're seeing these opportunities really bloom and really flower, we're seeing an anti-scientific ideology trying to take them away, cruelly, ironically, in the name of equality. Yeah, to crystallize, it's an important point to say we've laid out some of the scientific details, but I don't want to miss the forest for those individual trees, as you just said. And to emphasize that point, the science is not with the ideology on this one. The science clearly indicates the profound and ineradicable problems with introducing biological males into women's sports. That's right. That's right. It is ideology running roughshod over science, which is really ironic because the person who typically is a champion of these Equality Act types of measures, including the ones that we've been criticizing, are typically the ones that yell anti-science at their <laughs> at their opponents. And probably there isn't another public policy issue that's a hot policy issue today that is less rooted in science, and not just rooted in science, but rooted in anti-science, and in which ideology has basically taken over science than larger gender issues, but this one specifically when we're talking about measurable and tractable differences that can't be denied, that no amount of scientific data is going to change, no matter amount of scientific testing is going to produce a different result, and yet we have ideology trumping that science. Yeah, I think that's right. So what we really have here is the convergence. If we can get past the ideological noise, we have the convergence on this issue of both the first-person experience of female athletes across the political spectrum, by the way. I mean, we're including Martina Navratilova and people who I probably don't normally see eye-to-eye with on, <laughs> on a lot of political <laughs> issues. But they have first-person, profound first-person experience at the highest levels of athletic competition. And so you have the convergence of their lived experience, as we call it these days, with the actual data that supports the perspective that they bring to the table. And those two converge on the really important need to protect women's athletics right here, right now. You know, this is the time, this is the year to do that. Absolutely. And in that vein, I, I just want to reiterate a reference that I made earlier. That's the work of Dorian Coleman at Duke Law School, because she's done a tremendous amount of work. And again, you're exactly like Martina Navratilova. There's almost nothing that Dorian and I would agree uh, about politically, uh, uh, except this issue. And because she has lived it as an athlete and she sees it as a scholar. And you're right, this is where it converges. And we, fortunately, we are seeing some fissures. I mean, this is the only issue that you could ever imagine where evangelical and conservative Catholic women have actually come together with some types of radical feminists to say, this is, you know, this is nonsense and this is denying opportunities to women. Unfortunately, there aren't enough of those right now. 
But as more people learn about the Equality Act and its real implications, perhaps we'll see some semblance of, I I don't want to use the word sanity, uh, we'll see some semblance of rationality come back into the debate. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm hoping that for our listeners, this episode is very helpful to achieve that end, to give people the information and the first-person perspective to have a reasonable position here. Because I think if we have a reasonable discussion in light of both the experience of women athletes and the science, then the outcome is fairly clear, and women's sports will be protected. Oh, you know, how how that happens in policy. And one of the things that we haven't discussed, but obviously is the the big issue out there, is how the courts are going to respond to this as litigation ensues. Because already there is litigation by women who have been denied opportunities under, and the litigation is pursued under Title IX. And uh, we'll see how courts respond to that. And of course, also, Kevin, as, as you and I are well aware, it also points out the importance of judges uh, and the ideological bent of judges who are making these decisions. So we're going to see a lot of things come together in the future over these matters. And, you know, at least legislatively right now, it doesn't look good. But in terms of the possibility of courts putting a halt to this, there's going to be a lot of litigation, a lot of money spent and a lot of resources used uh, to try to overcome these problems and to try to make restore the fairness that women have fought so hard for in athletic competition, athletic opportunities. Yeah. Well, for our Texas listeners, there will definitely be, there is already, has already been filed legislation for this current legislative session addressing this issue. So it's not just a federal issue. It's an issue right here in Texas as well that will immediately affect hundreds of thousands of female athletes in the state of Texas. I want to close the show by saying what a privilege it has been, and I hope that there are many other opportunities to give a microphone to amplify the voices of athletes like Margaret and Olivia so that their stories and their perspectives on this issue are heard. Not just as important, with all due deference to Ken, not just as important as the legal expertise and the scientific stats, but actually more important because these are the human beings whose lives will be affected by this decision. And so I want to say one more time, thank you to all three of the Craycrafts, Margaret, Olivia, and Ken. Thank you all for coming on, and we'll keep in touch as this issue moves forward and see how it develops, and hopefully things will turn out for the best. Thank you, Stuart. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.